They were high school sweethearts that got married and had two kids. It's the Brunigs. In the swamp of D.C. they tweet all day, but that's okay. They're the Brunigs. She is a journalist. He is a wonk. Wonk, wonk, wonk. They talk about the news or whatever they want. In the fight for justice, they're on your side. You can't deny it's the Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to our low-effort, low-quality podcast. On this very special episode, uh, I, your host, Matt Brunick, will be interviewing Marshall Steinbaum about tax credits and the CARES Act and what it all means. Uh, Before we get into the interview, I just wanted to plug again, go into the show notes, the show details, the episode details, whatever it's called, And you can become a subscriber on our premium podcast. You can do that on Supercast, which is a very cool platform I've just gotten on. And you can do that on Patreon. There's links in the show details. Click on them. Sign up. Five bucks a month. Good content. Uh, And yeah, here we go with the interview. Joining me right now is Marshall Steinbaum, who is, I believe, our first returning guest so great honor. Um, he is uh, currently a professor at the University of Utah in the economics department, previously in the cesspit of policy think tank world in DC. So hopefully things are clearer out there. And I wanted to talk to you today about the CARES Act, which was one of the two bills that have been passed in response to the coronavirus, and particularly one part of the CARES Act, which is an advanced tax credit that uh, is going to go out here soon, hopefully. Uh, We've talked about tax credits before. Uh, That's the other reason you were on the podcast when we talked about the earned income tax credit. And this uh, is an interesting update on that episode. So maybe people should listen to that one first. Um, But yeah, thanks for joining me. How's it going out there? Very glad to be back. Uh, You know, things have only gone from bad to worse in the wider world, but uh, certainly uh, my own life has taken an upswing by exiting D.C. and uh, returning to uh, the ivory tower, wherein I can indoctrinate uh, students as to the right way of viewing the economy. That's good. That's good. You've you've eschewed Mankey's... uh, principles of macroeconomics for Steinbaum's uh, own homebrew uh, lessons? Uh, you could say that. Actually, kind of amusingly, Greg Mankiw emailed me out of the blue a couple of weeks ago to clear up a misconception about him that I promulgated on Twitter. Uh, so I guess I will continue to clear that up right now by saying that it is not true that Gregory Mankiw uh, voted for Donald Trump or supports Donald Trump now, contrary to what I once tweeted. Um, Gregory Mankiw actually voted for Joe Biden in the Massachusetts Democratic primary in 2020. Okay. All right. Well, who who did he vote for president in 2016? That he didn't say. So what I wanted to talk to you about today was, as I mentioned earlier, this tax credit in the CARES Act. 
And as a preface for our discussion, uh, for our, our listeners who maybe don't follow this uh, as closely, I wanted to give a little history of this tax credit because it's been very interesting to me to watch this unfold. So initially in the Senate, Mitch McConnell put this tax credit in, and the idea was actually very initially was going to be uh, $600 per adult, uh, $1,200 for married fam, you know, married filing jointly, and then 500 per child, and they were going to try to send that out as quickly as possible. But you had to have a certain amount of positive tax liability to actually get the full amount. So now we're starting to uh, people who have uh, listened to the old episodes starting to get the understanding of the phase in, right? So initially, you start out. And at a certain dollar amount, if you don't have any earnings, and then your dollar amount goes up and up and up as you earn more and more and more, and then it plateaus, and then we go into the phase out. Uh, and that's how the, the credit was originally structured. Um, the credit became more generous um, along the lines, and it became 1200 per adult and 2400 for married filing jointly. The 500 remained as it was. But what was interesting in addition to becoming more generous, is that they eliminated the phase-in. So no longer was it the case that someone who had zero earnings only received a partial amount, and then you got more and more and more if you earned more. It became the case that right at zero earnings, you got the full amount, the full 1200 uh, and 500 per per child. Um, and what I thought was fascinating about this development from a kind of a think-tanky perspective and historical perspective is when they introduced this credit and people saw the phase in, there was like across the board horror at the idea that you would give the lowest earners less than sort of moderate earners. Um, and across the board, meaning Republicans as well. So Mike Rounds, uh, a senator from South Dakota, who's a Republican, uh, was quoted as saying something like, <laughs> even people on low incomes have some basic expenses. I mean, surely they're going to need some money for that. Um, and they got rid of it. They got rid of the phase in after the reaction, which was very, very fascinating. Um, and there were some stories written about that. Bob Greenstein was quoted in some of them. We can, we can get into that. Um, but the other thing that I thought was fascinating about this is people both reacted against the phase-in. They were like, ah, phasing in on the poor, that's not fair. Why would you give the poor less? And they reacted against the idea that we should be paying benefits based on prior year's tax records. Because in order to actually make this work and to have a, a, a schedule that's based on income, you need to know what someone's income is. But we don't know what their income is yet in 2020, so they're using 2019 and 2018 tax records. And so people are saying, well, wait a minute, maybe I had a lot of income in 2018, but now I don't have any. Maybe, for instance, because I've lost my job as a result of the coronavirus. Um, and so there's a reaction against matching benefits to prior year income. Um, and what's fascinating about both of those things is that the earned income tax credit and the child tax credit both work exactly like that. There's a phase in on the poor. So if you're very poor, you don't get the full amount or any in some cases. And it's based on your prior year tax return, not based on your current income. Um, and so I wanted to get your you know, reaction to that development as someone deep in, uh, previously deep in the, in the think tank trenches um, 
and see see what you thought about that development, what it might mean for policy generally. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess on one the one hand, the optimistic way of looking at things is they finally come around to our way of viewing the world. Uh, so I think we can pat ourselves on the back. This is undoubtedly our doing. Um, in the, the, Me and you, uh, together, and uh, Kevin Warner. The, uh, Casey. Oh, Kevin Warner as well. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> and Max, Max Casey. Oh, yeah, yeah. Max, Max, uh, and Kazi. Yeah, got to, uh, got, got to credit him too. Kazi, yes. Sorry. Uh, Oh, and the and the Jesse Rostin. Uh, yes, yes. Although so although the, Jesse the Jesse's Portet. actually kind of moved his position on the overall EITC thing. But let's let's not let's not rehash okay. old. Let's uh, not bog down. Uh, uh, disputes. Uh, I think it's time to look forward, not back. As is always the right thing, the right uh, <laughs> stance politically. Um, yeah. So I mm. thought you know ever as, as you described the reaction to. Um, the initial proposal of the phase in and the uh, you know for example and also like the big differences between um, you know whether you're married or not married how much money you get you know I, people's reaction to that was oh you know everyone's trying to ag- to grind their political axes on choosing who deserves benefits based on their prior kind of ideology of you know who's living the life according to the way that my political dictates say that they should um, so uh, you know, and 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 the reason why the phase in matters for that is because the whole point of it initially is that um, you don't want to reward people for not standing on their own two feet and making a living, at least some something of a living on their own. So if they are, and that living isn't actually enough to support themselves and their families, well, then then those people can get some money. Um, but if somebody's not making a living at all, then they're just a ne'er do well, and uh, to uh, give them any cash benefits is to approve of their lifestyle and possibly make it worse by causing them to work even less or some 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 version of that. Um, so, I mean, I think the overall uh, about face, as it were, is to some degree bound up in the particulars of this crisis, which we can talk about and probably will be woven through this conversation, which is, you know, you, under normal economic circumstances, it's considered to be better economically if more people are working. We can debate the ethics of that. In fact, that's what Max Kazi does in the paper about uh, the EITC and UB and uh, universal basic income. Um, but that the, the view has been: if more people have jobs and are making a living, that's that that is a economic outcome that we want to bring about. Um, and unlike that normal time in the current time, uh, we certainly don't want people convening in a common workplace. We want to make it possible for as to, to live one's life and subsist economically without coming or without coming into contact with very many uh, of our fellow human beings. In fact, try to come into contact with as few of them as possible, as is consistent with uh, maintaining your uh, your your. Uh, lifestyle and, and feeding your family. Um, and so consequently, the idea of causing more people to show up to work um, is kind of the opposite of, uh, of of what policy is aiming at in the current time. You've wrote, spoken about this on other episodes of this podcast. Um, and so under those circumstances, a phase-in looks particularly uh, um perverse because it's saying well you know the more you work the better the more benefit you get ostensibly what's happening is instead of earning say ten dollars an hour at the margin you earn 12 or something like that um, based on based on the earned income tax credit so so you'll want to work more because of that um, what we actually want under the current circumstances is uh, people to earn enough of a living that they can survive 
without having to show up at a workplace. And under those circumstances, the EITC type phased in uh, wage subsidy to get more people into <laughs> communal environments and uh, uh, into the labor force, so to speak, is uh, totally perverse. And I think that kind of came to the fore. And I hope that what this experience shows is that it was always perverse. It's not just under the uh, uh, conditions of a mass pandemic and outbreak of disease that we that that encouraging people or, or making it an aim of policy for people to supply more labor than they otherwise would you know that that's perverse under all circumstances it's just obviously perverse under the current ones right and and, and i should emphasize because i so one reaction would be to say, well, EITC is meant to incentivize labor supply. We don't really want that now. So that would be the difference. But what I thought was interesting was if you looked at what people actually said and how they were, how they responded to it on a sort of gut level, it wasn't, oh, well, we don't need to incent labor supply right now. And therefore, instead, it was like, why would we deprive the poor? That's sick. Even the Republicans, you know, they didn't make an exceptional case for it. They just made the same case for it that we've been making and everyone else has been making on this side of things, which is incentivizing labor supply, as you call it, is really also at the same time not providing for the poor, which is, uh, I would say, far more important than incentivizing labor supply. Um, the other perverse thing I should add here is it doesn't phasing it in which is how they had it initially that didn't even really incentivize labor supply because it was based on prior years of income in which there was no foreknowledge that in 2020 you would be rewarded for your extra labor force participation uh, in 2018 or 2019 um, so it, it was truly a zombie a weirdo idea on both levels both because it kept in the incentive like structurally, but also because the incentive didn't operate because it was based on years before, which you could not have responded to this incentive uh, for. Yeah, and I think that that goes further towards showing out how kind of silly the EITC structure is, even under normal times, as you just alluded to. You know, the idea is, oh well, the a, a worker is thinking, oh, you know, should I get off my ass and go to the go to the office today or go to my job. Um, I'm making $10 an hour. You know, it's probably only worth my while to work a part-time job or not work at all versus if I'm making 12, then uh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to work a full 40-hour week or something like that. That that's that mindset is what is operating behind the ostensible structure of the EITC. And yet, as you say, the, the way it's actually implemented is by looking back to see how much money you earned from your labor income last year, seeing where that falls on your famous trapezoid diagram, and then giving you a tax credit on the basis of that look back. Um, so that does not operate on the margin, even if you believe that the uh, kind of labor supply story that that uh, that is how uh, people decide how much to work or not to based on their effective uh, wage rate at the margin, um, that isn't exactly, that is definitely not how the EITC was um, was implemented. And so now you get this, this situation, as you alluded to, where, uh, you know, you're, you're calculating up how much somebody made in uh, 2019, maybe then they had a job that uh, put them... Uh, well into the territory of, uh, you know, even the phase out or whatever, they had higher income. Um, now they're uh, not earning anything. And so at least if, if we kept the phase in as part of the deal, then they wouldn't be getting any benefit. Um, I think that gets to the sort of state uh, competency question that 
also underlies why the EITC is structured the way it is and and other, also other things about the CARES Act, um, you know, namely the fact that it's actually once they did ultimately decide to uh, pay adults uh, earning less than whatever $75,000 a year, uh, uh, $1,200, it's like, okay, well, how do we actually get them the money? Oh my God, that's going to take months for many people who haven't given the IRS their direct deposit information. Um, the government does not maintain an ongoing... Um, uh, payroll database uh, that's basically in in private hands uh, and decentralized. I mean, it is kind of centralized because that those companies have now become very concentrated. Yeah, right, right, but, but that's certainly not a government policy. Um, and so, if the government want, they don't even know where you live. So, you know, they <laughs> like mailing people checks is a problem because um, there is no one IRS database that has that contains everybody's address. And even the EITC had the effect of. Um, uh, you know, causing more people to file tax returns, which does give the government your address. Um, that itself is bad because uh, we don't want necessarily want lots of low-income people filing tax returns. I think we'll get into this a, a bit in, in in the future. But you know, you think about how the actual state apparatus functions. You know, it functions in a very cobbled together way, and that is itself part of our political economy. And that's why the EITC has this thing like, okay, look back to prior income. The the reason why you can document that is because you is because you file a tax return at the end of the year. You have to pay somebody to help you do that, probably. Um, and and then okay now we know that we can tell you how much money you got um, and then we'll just sort of retroactively having implemented a, a program that works like that say oh yes this caused people to work more on the margin because they knew they were going to get um, an effective twelve dollars an hour mm -hmm. instead of an effective uh, ten dollars an hour right yes the, the 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 marginal effect I think is. I find it very interesting because it is true, right? There's also there the, one of the issues is the mismatch, obviously, between when you get the benefit and when you're actually working. But also, it's based on your annual income, and so you don't really know, uh, you know, oh, I'm going to go to work today because I got to get my annual income beefed up. But you could lose your job, you know, <laughs> in a month or two, and then your annual income has taken a dive, and now you're. You know, you've wasted your time trying to get up that EITC ladder. I mean, I guess you got a little bit extra, but not nearly as much as you might have thought. Um, and you could have gotten food stamps or something if you hadn't put that put that work in that you did put in. Um, but yeah, so the administrative part, I think, is interesting. Mnuchin saying it's going to take as many as 20 weeks to get the check out to people who don't have uh, direct deposit and that's for people who they have addresses for, for people who neither have bank accounts, you know, on record or addresses on record. Uh, you pretty much need to uh, file <laughs> a form and, you know, hope that they process it and get it back to you, um, which good luck with that, uh, I guess. Um, but yeah, so so what? What what should we you know what what I guess what should we take away from this more generally we have um you know that phase ins are bad uh, prior year income so okay so I wanted to make another point on the prior year income right and to emphasize to people who maybe this is a bit of a cloud you you take all your earnings from 2018 you add them all up and then in 2019 come tax time they apply this complicated formula to it and they give you a check and. Why, so uh, uh, despite the fact that that seems to counteract a lot of the 
uh, stated purposes of the program, including incentivizing labor at the intensive and extension mar- intensive and extensive margin. What what are the other reasons that might be problematic? Yeah, I mean, I think as we talked about in the last time I appeared on this podcast, you have this paper by Clevin that says, uh, you know, uh, contrary to the received wisdom that ex- increasing the EITC caused an increase in the labor supply of single mothers, it was actually the reduction in uh, uh, aid to families with dependent children, the conversion of that to temporary aid to needy families, and then essentially the ultimate extinction of that program de facto uh now, which is to say, there's no money that's available unconditionally to single mothers, uh, and ergo, they have to go to work to get it. Um, so that kind of was it the carrot of EITC or the stick of welfare reform that caused increases in labor supply by uh, single mothers in the 1990s? I think um, you know Clevin answers that very uh, affirmatively in uh, about or, or uh, affirmatively saying it's uh, about the stick of the welfare reform, and but I think. As you kind of were alluding to just now, the b- both of them went together. Was like, okay, well, we used to think that if you're a single mother, then what you need to do is uh, care for your children, and there's a state interest, there's a, a public interest in providing the income necessary for you to to do that without uh, without working. Um, and even if you want to kind of get even further back into the past um, in the sort of ideology of the welfare state, we actually want single mothers not to be working and to be caring for their children because if they do enter the workforce, they are competing with men um, and thereby reducing the male breadwinner wages. So if we, we want to keep the workplace segregated um, by gender, in order to uh, protect the status of male workers. Um, anyway, that completely flipped around with uh, those uh, changes and policies in the 1990s. I think uh, you know the the current uh, uh, faddish term for that is neoliberalism. Um, and uh, we got this: oh, if you're a single mother, you better be working. In fact, that's the only thing that you uh, that that uh, there's an interest in you doing um, because that's the, the if, if you think of the kind of gender segregation of the labor market as one disciplining device um, of a, pre- a previous era, the disciplining device of the neoliberal era was everyone has to work. If you're not in the labor in the labor force, then um, you have no worth as a human being. Um, and any policy that might give rise to you being able to support yourself and your children without working, um, that needs to be eliminated uh, because you know that that's creating this kind of culture of poverty, to use the the uh, then current um, uh, term. Right. Right. So I wanted to uh, to also uh, you know I I kind of went a little bit off track from uh, your answer about. Uh, this mismatch between uh, when the EITC and these other tax credits are paid and when people actually receive income. Because I think, I, I only realized this very recently, and I feel bad because I, you know, I've hated the EITC for so long. Um, uh, you know, I've missed this uh, particular argument. But um, I feel like this. <laughs> I feel like this is the ultimate scam that I've just hit upon. And maybe it's because it's fresh and I'm like old, used to the old stuff. But in addition, you know, it's like <laughs> you set out, how can I get the most people over the poverty line with the least amount of dollars? I got it. Let's just concentrate the money to those who are right below the line. But then the problem is presented. Wait a minute. How do you know who's right below the line? 
We don't know because it depends, you know. They haven't earned all their income for the year yet, you know. It, you know, it's it's only May. Uh, what are we gonna do for? We don't know what they're gonna make in November or December or whatever. So you you can't really do that. And then they're like, no, I got it. I will just wait till they've earned all their income and we have that recorded, and then I'll just top them up. And then you come back and you say, well, you could do that, but the top up check's gonna occur in the next year. And so that's not really going to solve your problem either. And then the fix, no worries. I will just, by convention, force you to count it in the prior year. That'll, that'll, now, I've, now I've actually solved it. This is a perfect. And it's like, because otherwise it's impossible. It's an impossible program to, in advance, target money right below the poverty line. And I start thinking about, well, of course, that's why we, in other like normal welfare states, the benefits are not tailored in that way. They're tailored to life events like unemployment or disability or something like that, because you don't know what someone's income is going to be at the end of the year. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. This, that, 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 this has radicalized me even more, and I, I do an, an eventually need to get it out, I guess, as like a five-page uh, short brief or something like that um, to see if I can... Well, yeah, if you're going to be a real think tanker, Matt, you have to grow up and produce the five-page briefs. Come on. <laughs> I know. Um, I know, with abstract and the whole thing. Yep, no, executive summary. Exactly. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's what it's called in the... Yes. <laughs> no, anyway, I mean, I was going to say, so So there's you got this kind of whole nonsense of the, uh, you know, how do people choose how much to work? Well, uh, let's figure out what their effective wage is and therefore where they are on their, um, you know, labor supply curve and blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, there's also the, you know, the <laughs> this motivation that I would say is like more faithful to the actual um, history and ideology of the... F- uh, construction of the program, which is, um, you know, on the one hand, you've got the uh, imperative of, um, you know, people need to work in order to be uh, worthwhile as human beings. Um, and then there's also the problem of not spending enough, a lot of money. Um, so first of all, the f- whole idea that our anti-poverty poverty is run through tax credits that's designed so that it's like, oh, you know, it's not it, it, the gov- the budget. It's the federal budget isn't spending the money. It's not writing checks to people. We can actually put that on the tax side so that it's not collecting the money. Um, and then it actually looks like we reduce the size of the state by enacting the EITC. We reduce the tax burden. It's called the tax expenditure. Um, and then through the tax system, we actually effectuate uh, welfare spending and. That whole idea of like taxes are bad, spending money on the budget is bad. Okay, if we're going to have a policy that encourages work and doesn't spend money on the on the spending side of the budget and reduces the effective uh, or taxes as a share of overall GDP, for example, um, you know the EITC is like perfectly constructed within that uh, uh, welfare uh, triumvirate, like welfare policy triumvirate to like. Be, to fit within the uh, preconceptions and uh, and notions of the type of people who design public policies at the federal level, um, it just doesn't actually work. Like that's kind of the least uh, uh, the least concern that we would have in constructing a welfare policy is one that makes people's welfare better, you know, one that improves people's welfare. Um, but we did those other three things, uh, or at least we said we could do that. I mean, as I said, the the whole sort of labor supply thing is is uh, a crock, but um, you know, we can kind of rig up a model that says that's what we did. Um, and, uh, and we, and, and, you know, lo and behold, we, we, we ticked off those three boxes and we reduced the 
poverty rate, um, the measured headcount poverty rate by X percentage points. Like, let's all go home and have a drink. And you know, if you're if you're Bob Greenstein, let's like have a retirement party where we celebrate all of the great um, uh, uh, contributions that we've made to uh, uh, to to the um, uh, welfare of of uh, people in poverty in the United States. You know, when like. Every piece of that, that every one of those checkboxes, you know, reduces the actual effectiveness of your program and makes poorer people better or poorer people worse off. Um, but you don't have to say that because it, it, it uh, satisfied all of the constraints yeah. imposed on your policies by your preconceived notions. It seems, it's, it's a lot of game playing. That's part of what really kind of frustrates me about this. The more that I've gone deeper in this and the way you described it there is basically game playing around certain indicators that don't really matter like the tax level versus the tax expenditure you know uh the tax level versus the spending level and whether it's a not tax or a yes spend or you know moving people just over the line by giving them a few dollars or like there it's like you've you've set off like a little uh like machine learning algorithm and you've given them this set of parameters you know minimize tax maximize headcount poverty reduction per dollar spent uh, maximize you know uh at least labor supply as we would model it as you know maximize the incentive to increase your labor supply whether it actually does or doesn't who cares and like you set the little machine off and then after you know uh, a thousand iterations it came up with this thing and like nowhere did you tell them like make lives for poor people better <laughs> like in a kind of holistic sense that was never the goal it was like hitting these numbers in a spreadsheet uh, and like they did they they do hit the numbers um but and then and then and then the success is determined by the fact that they hit the number. Like, like you then celebrate that. Well, that's what that. they engineered it to do. Right. Yeah, yeah, right. It's yeah. like, well, yes, okay, of so course. You set, the, <laughs> you set the criteria, and then you hit the criteria, and then you go, ah, I hit the criteria. Uh, be. It's like, you yeah, give yeah. So, a shit. So for the real heads out there, what's going on here is very similar to what happens when a macroeconomist rigs up a dynamic stochastic general equilibrium model in order to predict the uh, standard deviation of GDP around its long-run trend from 1948 until 19, I don't know, 86, um, using the uh, assumption, the micro-founded assumptions of uh, market clearing and Euler equations and uh, Wal Walras's law and whatever else, um, you know, to say, oh, well, look, actually, I set the, I, I figured out what the parameters of the macroeconomic uh, uh, general equilibrium model are, um, and I predicted uh, the correct standard deviation of GDP around its long-run trend um, when. You know that was the thing that you set up your solution algorithm to predict, um, and then you you know kind of tie a bow on that and submit it to the Journal of Political Economy, and you've got yourself tenure at the University of Chicago. <laughs> it's circular, I guess, would be the simple way to put it, um, and very troubling. So one other thing I wanted to highlight here is, you know, what is the experience of applying for these tax credits? We know right now it's going to be, some of it is going to kind of be automatic because you have to have already applied and that kind of thing. It's going to take a while. But in the normal days, you go in to go get your EITC. You know, what, what does that look like for most people? 
and do they actually get it? How many people are just just eligible but not getting it all? How many people are getting their money just swiped from predatory? You know, the people with the like swirly signs can come in here, get your tax refund. Like, do we have some sense of that? Yeah, well, I mean, there's uh, you know longstanding issues with the fact that you know tax returns in general are very complicated and intimidating for people. Um, if you're rich, then you hire someone to deal with it for you, who's an expert in that sort of thing, um, because it's well worth whatever that high-paid accountant gets paid uh, in order to uh, basically. Um, fit the picture of your personal finances into what the tax system wants it to be in or, and, and thinks that it's rewarding uh, so that you paint basically the prettiest enough picture of uh, your uh, economic life for the benefit of the uh, tax system such that you end up paying the least amount of taxes. Um, basically, we have set up the same system for poor people, but it's way less favorable to them. Um, so first of all, it's a complicated and intimidating process. What that means is that for people who think they may be eligible for the EITC and who are told that they're eligible for the EITC, you know, end up uh, needing to consult a professional. And what these kind of tax filing services that are targeted at uh, people who would benefit from the ITC do is uh, essentially, you know, submit the tax return for you. In many cases, they are even essentially a bank or, or lending facility. So they uh, have or, or are in some sort of, you know, it's their affiliate who's lending the money or something like that, where they say, okay, you know, on the day you submit um, the uh, your tax return, um, we'll give you a check for the amount of refund that we're expecting you to get on the basis of the tax return we just filled out for you. Um, we'll give you a check um, that's some lesser amount of dollars than that. And then when the check actually comes in, we'll pocket it, not you. Um, and that invariably... <laughs> Yeah, and that invariably works out to a gigantic uh, 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 percentage rate for uh, whoever is, uh, is being victimized by this kind of scam. Um, but you can see why it would make sense because, I mean, you know, for this, we were just talking about how it's hard for the government to get people checks. So if you're worried like, oh, is the government going to be able to find me? I mean, one thing that's quite true about being poor in this country is that it means you're much more housing insecure. So um, who knows if you'll be living in the same place when the check actually gets issued as when you're filing the tax return. You you know, if you have any kind of uh, uh, apprehension about that, then it's like, okay, well, this guy's promising me a pile of cash right now, um, and that seems like it's actually the prudent option, even if it amounts to taking much less than I'm entitled to um, as a result of uh, of the tax refund. Um, so, uh, you know, that's uh, a huge scam. I mean, as as I uh, suggested earlier, uh, it's not actually necessary for most people for to file a tax return. The government is able to gather the information about how much you earn by itself. In fact, it it is already doing that in many cases. Um, if you have a, a W-2 uh, or equivalent tax form from your work that says how much tax is withheld or not withheld um, and how much money you earn, you know the government has that. They could essentially prepare your tax return for you or alternatively calculate how much tax you owe, then say mail you a form instead of you mailing them a form. That form says, you know we think this is how much money you made and therefore this is how much money you owe given all the tax credits or whatever else we want to do. Um, you know, do you agree to this? And, you know, probably the most people would say yes, because they're, 
government is probably just as right as they could possibly be. But yet we have this middleman that's there because we put the onus on individuals to tell the government how much they make, even though the government in most cases already knows. Um, so there's – it's basically a gigantic racket, the tax preparation industry that does not need to exist um, and that is kind of sitting there. You know, it, 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 In some ways, it is the like – it is the creation of all of those um, restrictions on how we structure our, our welfare state uh, that uh, we talked about earlier, kind of living within the like – obvious inconsistencies and inefficiencies in the way that that welfare state is constructed is the need for a market segment in tax preparation for the vast majority of people. Like there's probably no way to avoid tax preparation if you're rich and have tons of assets and you know you have to figure out what they all are and what kind of assets they are because different kinds are taxed at different rates. Like there's going to be a need for uh, accountants, services, and tax preparation that service the rich that have complicated financial lives. Um, and, but for the vast majority of people, absolutely not. Um, then the other thing I wanted to mention is this whole uh, business of the free file scandal. Um, so basically in the 2000s, the IRS, I mean, the IRS has known this for a long time. In the 2000s, um, they kind of were going they they were finally making noises like i mean this was kind of in the aftermath exactly of the the expansion of the EITC in the 1990s where you know a, a, at, in that period a whole new swath of people needed to file tax returns on uh, uh, on an annual basis in order to qualify for the EITC so you know the IRS i mean the IRS was well aware of the of the general problem for a long time but they were acutely aware of how big it had become um, for a whole sort of swath of the public that had previously not had to interact as much with the tax system now they did as a result of EITC they they were threatening basically to create a uh, module for tax preparation for um, uh, lower moderate income people um, that would have bypassed the tax preparation industry so it would have basically been uh, tax filing software and a whole um, uh, function whereby uh, you know the onus on individuals would be minimal if not uh, 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 zero and it would have a it would carry a, a price tag of zero dollars basically for the individual um, and the IRS was threatening to put this in place in response to that um, the tax preparation industry kind of got together and said no 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 don't do that don't create the public option for tax preparation basically that's what it would have been um, the, a free public option for tax preparation instead we will do that we will create a free service uh, that low to moderate income people can use to pay their taxes you just have to guarantee us in order to make it worth our while to collectively create this free service and offer it on each of our own platforms. Um, you have to assure us that you won't do it. Uh, and so, and, and so the government, uh, and the IRS entered into an agreement called the Free File Alliance. Well, it entered into agreement. I think the Free File Alliance refers to the group of tax preparation, um, uh, firms that, uh, that mutually agreed to abide by the system. Um, and in exchange for that, the, uh, the, the federal government, uh, promised not to create their own, um, uh, public option. Well, first of all, I wanted to, uh, point this out because, uh, Matt, I know that you think that antitrust policy is a bane of the working class, but in fact, part of that uh, agreement was a exemption from antitrust for this um, free file alliance and the terms in which the Department of Justice rendered its opinion that that essentially cartel of tax uh, tax preparation companies um, 
coming together to agree to collectively offer this service, the, the terms in which the Justice Department said, yes, this is not an antitrust violation, was, oh, you're doing it for free. That's good for consumers. That's The whole point of antitrust policy is to make things free for people or low price for people. So if you promise us that you're coming together to do it for free um, and give people this uh, low-cost service, then um, – uh, you can have an antitrust exemption for that. In fact, we will not just give you an exemption. We'll like issue a press release about how great you are. Um, well, okay. That happened in the mid-2000s, I think 2006, 2007. Then it turned out that the tax preparation companies, <laughs> they I think the way the, the timeline is they started doing it and then they were like, wait a second, we just got an antitrust exemption for working together to create this uh, – this platform. In exchange, we got the IRS not to promise to promise not to compete with us by creating their own uh, public option. Um, wouldn't it be cool now if we uh, just didn't provide the free service? Or alternatively, here's an even better idea: let's hide the free service behind um, a website that can never be accessed from the internet. Um, and instead, when people come, when people like click on you know free tax preparation link, we'll just funnel them into the part of our website that's a paid service um, and does something that's slightly different, so they can say that they're not directly violating their agreement with the IRS. Um, if we all do that, then uh, nobody will uh, actually, or then we wanted to provide the service for free to anybody. Um, and that is ultimately what happened. So there was a big investigation by ProPublica in the last couple of years that uncovered this brewing anti-competitive conspiracy um, to totally subvert and circumvent the point of this whole agreement um, and instead funnel everyone who should be getting the services for free into the paid portions of each of these companies' um, uh, uh, service, uh, uh, provided services. Um, so that it kind of tells you what games get played in this industry. As I kind of started out by saying, the industry as a whole doesn't need to exist. Like it turns out, given the way this this all went down, that the best thing to have happened would have been the IRS not to try to uh, not to promise not to create a public option um, in favor of the private sector, but just to have created the public option right off the bat, not handed out the antitrust exemption, and just put all these people out of business by. Performing the service for free that they charge people to perform, and that our strange uh, uh, welfare state setup requires to exist for some reason. Yeah, I, I love this story because it has it has all of the dysfunctions of the system in together. Right, you you first you create the uh, you create a government benefit that's implemented through the tax code. Then, for people to access it, they have to pay usurious interest rates or these high fees, and then you go, "Oh, that's not good." All right, well, we need to solve that. We need to make sure they don't have to do that. Uh, I got it. Uh, what if we do means-tested, free tax prep implemented by private companies, and we will agree not to do it publicly? And then, of course, they then abuse that status to make it impossible to find the free service. I think that's a very... That's a that's a perfect you know if you describe America to me in one in one story I'd be like here it is um, one bit of color on this I will add and I don't know if this is true anymore but I read this many years ago from a reputable source is that in Sweden for at least some time they would text you your tax return from the uh, tax authority and if you were okay with it you could just text back yes 
you know, whatever it is in Sweden. <laughs> Wait, how do you say yes in Swedish? I, I don't know. I, I should. I should. You don't know. I know. Oh, I my know. God, you're our, our Scandinavian <laughs> correspondent just coming up short. Um, and maybe it was maybe it was Y or or whatever the letter would be there, but like, <laughs> and they would show they had this whole article and it was very cool. So and I was like, that's perfect. People use their phones, they text. Uh, there you go. Just click, click yes, and and you're good to go. Um, that that seems like a very well run and rational system, as opposed to uh, free means tested, privately administered uh, tax prep. <laughs> for taxes that are imposed by the government um, that you have to get a private company to do for you. Um, but yeah, all right. Uh, so yeah, I mean, is there anything uh, that we're missing here? I think, we, I think we've, you know, we've covered a lot of it. Um, oh, I, one little stat I wanted to point out was, um, and this was uh, from a study from four years ago. Uh, and, you know, it's a little bit hard to get concrete numbers on how much money people lose in these tax prep uh services when they like go to file for their EITC at, you know, Liberty Tax Service or whatever. Um, but there was an effort to figure this out doing like some surveying in Washington, D.C. and Baltimore. And they found that people who are eligible for EITC spend between 13 and 22 percent of their refund at local tax preparation outlets. So uh, now, so Matt, have you calculated what that would mean for the headcount poverty? That, rate? I that's an that's yes, that's another question I have, and I need to ask some people a little bit because <clears throat> I know the way that they do it in the census data that people use to calculate this is they apply a tax model to what you say your earnings are. Uh. So they're obviously not picking this up. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah. now maybe they'd say, well, hey. Uh, you did get to consume that money by buying tax services. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where's that at the utility function? <laughs> I don't know. You got, you got the great joy out of uh, just your your day spent with the uh, the the um, uh, wonderful pleasure palace of H and R Block's uh, local uh, outpost. Um, just you know. Total utils, like injected straight into your veins. You could. You, they probably arteries. gave you a free bottle of water, air conditioning. There's a lot, a lot to like about going to the H and R Block office. Um, but yeah, I wonder. I maybe I should just just deflate it by thirteen percent. That's the lower bound, and 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 just just keep tacking on these little things. I do think that their model does account for the fact that. Uh, according to the IRS, uh, about 20% of people who are eligible for the EITC never apply for it, probably because they assume uh, quite reasonably that my income is so low that I owe no tax and therefore I don't need to file. Um, and you have to explain to them, oh, no, you'll get taxes back. And, uh, oh, well, I don't pay any taxes. Well, okay, yeah, it's we call it taxes back. And, you know, I don't know. It's a very confusing system. Um, I actually saw today um, th there was a whole tweet thread. Rick Wilson was on it. That's the one who, who was talking about the CARES Act, you know, which is what, how the discussion started. And you're getting your 1200 and your 500 right? And the way they're describing this as, as an advanced tax credit for 2020. That's how they're describing it, yes. And so people were reading you know, Forbes or Washington Post or whatever, explainers. And they were like, wait a minute. If it's an advanced tax refund for 2020, are you just saying that my 
refund check I'm going to get from 2020 is just going to be lower now because you're advancing it to me. Like that's how they read it in their mind. And you get it. You're like, oh yeah, okay, yeah. You're used to getting a refund check. And they just said this is an advanced refund check. So you're like, oh shit, I get 1200 now, but my refund check's going to be 1200 lower at the end of the year. And it's like, this is the worst way to communicate. And these are more somewhat sophisticated people, you know, and they're still trying to figure out what the hell, what is an advanced tax rebate? I thought it was just a check. Oh, God. Yeah, right. So, right. Well, I mean, I think, you know, to kind of uh, summarize, I guess, or get back to the the, um, point of this, you know, like the obvious alternative in that kind of instance is just send people money and stop with monkeying with this notion that it's all part of the tax system, that it's tax refunds and the tax refunds are timed in a certain way and based on um, an income calculation such that you know it's well targeted according to the metrics adopted by policy wonks or whatever. Um, you know, give people money on a regular basis and certainly create the structures of the welfare state that enable that to be done uh, without going through all of this uh, rigmarole, and you've solved all the problem. I think the issue here, as as we've been alluding to throughout, is the kind of ideology that presupposes that the welfare, or the ideology that holds that the welfare state um, is somehow economically harmful. Doing it in that straightforward way is bad, either in terms of its actual impact on the economy because it causes people to stop working. That's usually the way that argument gets framed. Or it's bad politically to take the more Bob Greensteinian view of things. It's like, it's not that it's, you know, I think the way that, that he would normally phrase it is, you know, this is the best we could do in the political system and given the political constraints that we face. It's not so much that we believe so strongly in this labor supply nonsense. Um, it's that, uh, you know, we have to kind of play that game in order to get anything for, for working people and for poor people. Um, and I would hope, I mean, th- that coming out of this entire experience with a particular kind of economic crisis where we absolutely don't want people to be working unless they're, quote, essential employees, is how silly it is to structure the welfare state on the grounds of um, the politics of deservingness uh, and trying not to have it cause too much economic harm or to serve political ends that make it seem like you could spin it as not causing economic harm. You know, the economic harm in the current context comes from people working. That's how you spread virus. Uh, And so that totally inverts the overall or the the usual um, conceptions about uh, why the welfare state is structured the way it's structured. And like that's w- what we're talking about now with this uh, pandemic. That's reality. And so it should <laughs> alter our way of thinking about um, the the policies and structures by which those policies are implemented. And I hope that's what comes out of this. I mean, you know, when you saw this, as, as you opened up with uh, saying, people uh, saying, uh, you know, even Republican senators saying, like, that's crazy not to pay people who don't have any income. Like, what's the whole point of this is to support people who don't have any income. Um, unfortunately, the way these things get kind of mediated through our political system, ultimately, the thing that gets spit out is is reflective of the uh, ideologies that went in. And I don't think, you know, just the fact of the pandemic by itself is enough to change uh, the politics of uh, the welfare state. But I, I certainly hope that it starts or at least uh, pushes along that that process. Um, 
you know, there's, I mean, <laughs> there's little to be optimistic about in this country's politics or economic future for that matter um, at the moment, but there, it's not totally out of the question that we might see something like that uh, come out of this uh, crisis. And I don't think that, that we should basically settle for anything less. All right. Well, that's Marshall Steinbach, University of Utah. Thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been great to uh, to join you.